Hi, my name is Yara and I'm the host of Life After Birth. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wajak Noongar people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. I send my respects and reverence to Wajak Noongar elders, past, present and emerging. On this podcast, we share stories and wisdom about the ups and downs of our mothering experiences, much like the First Nations people of Australia have done so through their storytelling for over 60,000 years. Through their oral traditions, the Wajak Noongar people have supported and celebrated one another and have passed down knowledge, values and lessons, providing a testament of the power and significance of sharing our own stories. In honouring them, we recognise the importance of storytelling in understanding our past, navigating our present and shaping our future. My hope is that this podcast carries this spirit forward in our conversations, acknowledging that while our stories may differ, they all hold value and contribute to our shared human experience. Hey Mama, I'm Yara Heary and this is Life After Birth. This is where you can find honest and vulnerable conversations that lift the veil on how mothers really experience life after birth. Join me as I talk to the experts in the parenting space, but not as you've heard them before. These conversations explore the common humanity in all our lived experiences as mothers, so that you're left feeling seen, heard, validated, and bolstered in your ability to weather your mothering storms. So this episode was an amazing conversation to have, but it was even more amazing for me to listen back. Even once I had done the editing, I still listened back to it another two times because it is such a powerful conversation that I have with Kath Cunahan. I met Kath on Instagram. I came across her page. I can't even remember how. Um, but so much of her work and her messaging on her um, page there just really resonates with my own personal journey, but also with the way that I work in my own practice as well. And so she and I have been going back and forth talking about all things motherhood and our private practice and the way that we work with people and lots of trauma conversation. And I just knew I had to have her on to talk about her experience of becoming a mother. So on today's episode, Kath tells us about her ongoing journey with releasing control and leaning into imperfection. She talks about how she managed her breaking point at 10 months postpartum. We discuss childhood trauma and how it shapes us, the lifelong work of building self-compassion through reparenting, and how vulnerability has become her greatest strength. So Kath is a London-based, trauma-informed, integrative psychotherapist, lecturer, and host of the podcast, Grow Yourself Up. She is a mother of twin girls and started her practice, Psychotherapy Mum, after feeling blindsided by her own experience of motherhood. Kat's work is focused on supporting those who are healing their own childhood trauma, but specifically her expertise is in the emotional journey of parents who did not have their own needs met in childhood. This is a very open, raw and generous conversation, and I am just so eternally grateful to Kath for gifting this to me and to you. Please enjoy this episode. Kath, thank you so much for joining me on the show this week. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. <laughs> thank you so much, Yara. It's really delightful to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries. So let's just jump straight in. And the question that I always start with is, 
Where have you come from? What is your background? What's your story? And who were you in the lead up to or before becoming a mother? That's a, just a lovely question. And I'm not someone who tells like a short story or very neat <laughs> stories. <laughs> just That's right. good. I like that. I like that. I think I was a person who always liked to get things right and who, who learned that if I just worked hard enough and tried hard enough and perfected things, I could sort everything out. And I learned that a lot in my family of origin, that just working hard and taking care of the people around me and sort of managing everyone's emotions would, would make things okay. And I think a lot of those coping strategies actually have really are decimating in motherhood. I see this with a lot of my clients, actually, that the things that we learned, so I always call them adaptations, whatever you want to call them, trauma responses or coping strategies, are the things actually that then become really tricky. And for me, they were really tricky in motherhood, mm. some of the things that I learned to do. So... I only met my husband when I was 36. I met him online. And previous, like the previous 15 years had been a bit of a, like a wreckage in terms of bad relationships and kind of healing from stuff and working mm. through childhood issues. So I was like overjoyed when I met my husband. And I had, I sort of had that fantasy that having a relationship, so we, we are married, but having a long-term relationship and having children was like somehow the pinnacle of everything. Mm. That's really what we're taught or not still. I think that's, yes, that's kind I, of what's come through in weeks. Oh, man, I'm so happy that you mentioned that because I think that, yeah, irrespective of what happens in your family of origin around that story, that is absolutely a story that is sold to us as women in this culture yeah. that we live in. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I definitely had that, you know. I'm not sure how consciously I was aware of that, but I'm pleased I retrained as a psychotherapist before I did all this because otherwise I think I would really be fumbling around because my own career has really helped me sort of manage the madness of motherhood essentially for me. Mm. And um, so motherhood, so I came in thinking both my sisters were amazing breastfeeders and I was like, oh, I'm going to be like an amazing breastfeeder. This is just going to happen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was one of the first things that didn't go according to my plan. Actually, my pregnancy didn't go according to my plan either because I fell pregnant with twins naturally, which was, I was very lucky. I mean, I was, I'd had a miscarriage. I think I was 39. So I, I, I felt profoundly grateful for that experience that, that I got twins. Mm. But then there was a lot of anxiety in my pregnancy around my husband's job and various different things. So it was kind of, um, and also when I was three, I had a brother who died of cot death or, or sudden infant death syndrome. So I was really anxious about getting the babies out and kind of seeing them being healthy and everything. But yeah, I think I came into, I did really subscribe to that idea that this will come naturally because I was such a caretaker. I had been tended to my mother's emotions, looked after all my siblings so I thought, I know how to do this, you know. And to a large extent, I did know how to do this. But the the way that you get triggered massively in motherhood because of your own history mm. is obviously not something you can understand until it happens. Yeah, totally. That's the my biggest thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like the biggest thing for you is managing the triggering or mm, how do I describe that even? It's almost like from a from a nervous system perspective, it's like, the inflexibility in in the nervous system functioning, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, like the yeah. the activation and then the difficulty with returning to baseline, you know, or returning yes. into that green zone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And what were you what were you doing leading into motherhood? Were you practicing seeing clients 
in this sort of capacity. I previously, so my first career was in financial services because I chose that. Really, I was interested in psychology actually, but in my family, there was a lot of kind of judgment around doing things that were clever. Mm. And I thought financial services was clever and that Mm. I would put myself into a career where there'd be, you know, it would be financially abundant. So I did that. And honestly, I think it started to, there was kind of a a bit of quite a lot of tragedy that happened. And so that that forced a bit of a, like re, I don't know, reassessment or a reckoning in some way of my life. Um, And then um, I, because I was so highly codependent. I wondered for quite a long time, should I actually do this? Or am I just turning some of my childhood coping strategies into my job? And so I worked through that in my own therapy for a while, um, included, I would really like to do this. So I was seeing, I had quit. Um, I trained at the same time as I was working in the city and I saw clients at the same time as I was working in financial services. But by the time I came to motherhood, I ditched all of that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how you found this, but certainly for me, I remember thinking, you know, now that I'm a mother, it means I find it's almost like I had, I felt some sense of permission to stop doing a whole bunch of things in life or to slow down. It was like I had a reason now to do that. I didn't have to hold myself to the same level of accountability of success in some way. But then what is really interesting is that when I did that, when I actually did become a mother and was in that postpartum period. And I would even say that first year, I just remember feeling like it was really actually, it was so challenging. And it was, it was a real big eye-opening for, eye-opener for me around how much a part of who I was was based on succeeding and being, you know, you talked about if I work hard enough and if I make enough money or like whatever that might be, you know, like work, 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 how much and how ingrained that still was for me. And of course, in yeah. mothering, that is just not compatible. Like in terms of like, there aren't a lot of like things that you can tick off that you've done. And it wasn't until, yeah, until I entered that postpartum period where I was kind of like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how much this made up who I was and and how yeah. how valuable I was. That was a really big thing for me. So I'm wondering for you, you know, when you then actually did become a mother, you said that you felt, okay, I can do this. I know how to care. I know how to nurture. But also having come from that background where you were like, I, if I, I mean, in some ways, if I work really hard, if I work really hard as a mother and do all the right things, I can hear that in there too. I don't know if that's what showed mm-hmm. up for you. But so you sort of had this feeling of like, I'm, I'm capable, I'm going to be okay in, term, in terms of your expectations going into it. How did you actually find it then? What was the reality, your lived experience? Yeah, totally different. So, so I found the not working thing. I started working pretty quickly actually after they were born because I got some, because I think one of the things actually that helped me because I had twins was because I, did, I needed to get help. Mm. We lived in a place where my parents were both dead my husband's parents live in another country. We didn't have any family help. And so where I might have struggled to ask for help or think I wasn't deserving or I shouldn't, it was like having twins was kind of so blindsiding. They were they were five weeks premature and they were really tiny. So feeding them, the breastfeeding didn't work out. They both had tongue tie and we didn't find that out for a while. And, and so I just pumped until seven months and we did combined feeding. But I couldn't feed them both together at the same time because they were so tiny and I couldn't put them in a chair because their necks just hung like this. And so 
a lot of the practical things I just couldn't figure out. I was sort of so, I felt so inept, but I didn't go onto like, interesting, there are tons of twins Facebook groups or other social networks, but I didn't do that. I didn't go onto Facebook and ask for help and say like, mm. I don't know how to feed them or I don't know how to bath them. I really went into a place, I think, of a lot of shame and of thinking of, I need to sort this out. I'm a psych, like, I think I thought to myself, I'm a psychotherapist. I need to sort this out. I need to sort this out. But it got to a place that after about 10 months, I really like hit rock bottom. And there was a morning that I'd actually booked to go and see a psychiatrist and I'd booked a babysitter who unfortunately my children didn't know to come so that I could go to the train station, get the train, go and see the psychiatrist. And the the woman arrived and I was feeding my kids breakfast in these little bouncy chairs and they didn't like, they didn't like, like look, look at her or they didn't want to be with her. Mm. And one of them started to cry. And then I totally went into a rage and I like, I was like running around the house trying to get my coat and my bag. And my husband rang and I answered the phone, but I was at the same time screaming at my child who was changing the nappy. And it was just a total, and I like got in my car and raced the train station, but I realized I would never get the train. And so I like pulled over on the side. It was like, felt very dramatic because I pulled over on the side of the road and I was like, I've got to do something now because otherwise I'm going to like destroy this family somehow, you know? And I actually went on medication for a year. Then I went to my local doctor, my like my GP, and they prescribed me an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication, actually, which also functions as an antidepressant. Mm. And that really helped me just kind of like squeeze the feeling band. You know, everything was like so big, like going like this all the time. Yeah. I've and it just kind of made mm. things a bit more manageable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Within a space that you could that you could tolerate and that you could manage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that I think that I have mixed feelings about medication in, in kind of I have a lot of different feelings about it, should I say, but it really gave me the space and time to have clarity about how some of the ways that I was being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this so much with my clients as well. Mm-hmm. That we exacerbate our own suffering, really. Yes. yes. Yeah, when we're um, in it, when we're in that hole, we can't see out, right? Um, yeah. You know, but then we, you know, someone being on the outside of that hole and knowing that we're down here there can hear us and can see all of the options and can see everything. But when you're in it, it's so, so difficult. And I feel like sometimes medication can be really useful because it allows us to have clarity or or space to be able to think. It's almost like it can it can balance out a little bit in terms of I'm thinking about from even from a nervous system perspective so that we're not in that fight or flight or that dorsal even right dorsal sort of space where we're like dissociated and checked out so that we actually can problem solve so that we can actually you know engage in talk therapy for example so yeah yeah, and I agree with you I have those mixed feelings as well but there absolutely is you know they absolutely are effective and are really useful for people in a lot of different situations as well yeah Mm. it really helped me and I think you're absolutely right it gave me the space not to be completely always in either like going between the survival states essentially and I was able to think okay I need to do more swimming I need yoga I actually had a therapist already but I then started to do a little bit of different therapy and I could really see how perfectionism mm. and control. Yeah. So come of two of my oldest coping strategies mm. had really come to the fore and were making everything so much worse mm. because of and shame, actually. I think shame is the thing we don't talk about it enough because oh, I think totally. that shame is what keeps us it, it what keeps us quiet and like thinking, 
Like everyone else knows how to bath their twin babies. Why am I such an idiot? Yes, you know? it's just me. And yeah, yeah, it's just me. And so I, I, I really noticed how much I was shaming myself. Mm-hmm. How much the perfectionism, that drive to sort of show that you kind of had it sorted, and because especially when you want, I wanted something for children for so long, and so it was like it was like literally, it's such a messy journey to get there, which I won't kind of brag with you now, but it was such a messy journey. So then I was like so delighted. And then how come it's just such a massive shit show? Yeah. And I know, you know, certainly with with clients that I've had and also mothers that I know personally who've, yeah, had a difficult path on the way to conceiving, you know, in terms of IVF or otherwise. And then when they enter motherhood, when they struggle, it is they feel such shame about that because they wanted it so badly. And it's just that thing of like it doesn't matter how much you wanted it. It doesn't matter how wished for and prayed for these babies were, it doesn't take away the difficulty that we experience, yeah. right? And it doesn't take yeah. away imprinting that we've had from our family of origin and, you know, all of those sorts of things that show up all of a sudden. And, you know, we were t- talking just before we started recording about, you know, even therapy that you've done before, right? Like I had done so much as well. And then you enter motherhood and you're like, oh, okay, I need more. Like <laughs> there's, there's yeah. more, there's more layers, <laughs> you know, absolutely. And I think, you were sort of mentioning there as well around the perfectionism in control. And one of the things that I really think about that too is, you know, I've definitely experienced that too and is absolutely one of the most common things that I see with the mums that I work with is also because from a cultural perspective, those two ways of being are so valued in our culture. Like this idea of being in control and, you know, independent, not needing help from anyone else. Like, you know, if we if something is hard, it's because we're not doing good enough, right? Like this messaging that we receive and and even in the way that advertising happens around products for, you know, babies and mothers and and the way yeah. that motherhood is portrayed in the media and, and social media and all of that sort of stuff, like there is so much messaging that we receive in our lifetime that is about being perfect. Little one here. <laughs> Hi, darling. <laughs> Little treasure. Where's your daddy? <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect. This is I'm going to leave it in. I'm going to leave it in because it's like this is real life. Hi, Hi babe. Hi, sweetie. What is this? They're my headphones. Where's your dad? So sorry. <laughs> 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 come grab it. So just jumping in real quick here. <laughs> to give some context. So my littlest one, Nakia, heard me recording and as she often likes to do when I'm working in the office, she came busting in um, to say hello, which she often does in when I'm doing my group um, coaching as well and everyone says hello. And I decided just to cut the end of it out because she wasn't like hugely distressed, but my husband did come in and have to take her out. And I thought you might not want to hear her on the way out as she's trying to claw onto the walls and stuff (laughs) as he's taking her out. But I did just want to leave a little part of that in because I do really want to show that this is actually just real life. I am a mother running a business, recording podcasts, talking to people from all over the world about what it's like for them to be a mother. So I did want to leave that part in. But anyway, let's return back now. So this is real life. It's all good. So good. Where were we talking? We're talking about, yeah, the perfectionism thing in our culture and the way that it's so, yeah, that way of being is so encouraged. And then all of a sudden we enter motherhood and 
we're still encouraged to be that way in the world, but it's so incompatible actually with this stage of life. And it's incompatible, I think, with being authentic, right? I think it's incompatible with that. But in particular in this stage of life where mothering has always been done, you know, for, for millennia in community with other people supporting you and and anticipating your needs and the needs of your children in so many ways, that now doing mothering in this very modern society that we have so isolated and then led to believe that we should be able to do everything on our own and meet every single need of our children on our own. So it's like a double whammy, isn't it? Like if you have that kind of programming from your family of origin and then you also have the social programming that comes with that as well, it can be the downfall. I think you're, I think you're right, it's really the downfall. And I think that I always use this analogy with clients. It's like a metal grate that comes down over us because I think that if we are securely attached and we are well, probably no one who's securely attached is probably listening to this, to be honest. But if, we, if we're if <laughs> securely attached and we were really well tended to in our family of origin, it's much easier. Mm. I think that we don't even notice that much of the societal message. We just mm. shrug it off and we yeah. be as we are. But mm. when we've come in with the trauma and then we have the societal stuff, it's like it locks together like that and it just holds us down. Mm. And it literally feels like it's strangling you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's yeah. what I felt. Like. Absolutely. It's a really good analogy, actually, yeah, because I think you're right. Like, I mean, I don't know what it's like to to be securely attached from, you know, in terms of from your family of origin, but, you know, that idea that if you are securely attached that you have a very, well, probably closer to an authentic sense of self and also feeling more safe to to actually ask for what you need and to be outside of, the norm maybe because it's important for you and because you matter, right? And really feeling that that sense. So you yeah, could find it absolutely much easier to kind of dismiss the social pressure for perfection and control and all of those yeah. sorts of things. Or and in fact for motherhood to look any particular way would yeah. be so, so much easier. And it's hard, you know, because I obviously because I'm a psychologist and you probably find this the same, like the the demographic of people that we're working with are people who are probably coming from backgrounds where secure attachment was not, you know, going to be likely for them. And for anyone listening out there, that does not mean that that can't change. It can change over time and with work and with good, healthy relationships. But, yeah, so it's it's an interesting thing because I just feel like from even in terms of from a historical perspective where we've come from, like with the wars that have happened in the past and everything, I absolutely have met people who are securely attached, but most of the people that I meet both in my personal life and obviously in my in my you know clinical work and that sort of thing are are coming from families even where there wasn't significant trauma but you know their needs weren't met their emo- their core yeah. emotional needs weren't met and that's what we're really you know getting at there Hey mamas, it's Yara here from Life After Birth Psychology. I want to talk to you about something that many mothers carry a lot of shame about, and that's anger. Have you ever found yourself thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Why am I so angry? Why can't I just stay calm? Well, I want you to know that you're not alone. So many mothers quietly worry about their anger. But did you know that your anger carries messages that can unlock a more regulated and fulfilling experience for you as a mother? To support you in changing your relationship with anger, 
anger, I have created a self-paced online workshop designed to help you understand your anger and learn to process and express it in more adaptive and healthy ways. Within the workshop, you'll explore the role of your nervous system, the hidden messages in your emotions, and even how your past influences how you respond to challenge and stress today. But the best part, you'll gain practical tools that'll help you gracefully steer through those intense moments, all while deepening the heartfelt connections you cherish with your children and loved ones. Ready to get started? All you have to do is head to lifeafterbirthpsychology.podia.com, scroll down and click on my Why Am I So Angry workshop. You can also check out the link in the show notes for today's episode. All right, let's get back to the show. Mm. Yeah, and I think actually that that's most the most widespread trauma I think that there is really. Absolutely. I mean, and whatever you want to label it, that mm. not having your needs met, and I think that we didn't know historically mm. how important it was to teach our children that the emotions are actually something that need to be tended to and to be yeah. used as a guide to life. Yes, you know, yes. yeah, and that they're valuable and they tell you information like straight from your body about what like mm. what like path to go down. But you know, it's like there's lots of labeling of that as, as emotional neglect. And it is because you're not taught any access to your emotional life. You're just taught to shut it, basically. Mm. You know, for anyone listening who thinks, oh, God, have I had that? Mm. It might, it, I think often for, for, for generations above, like that's that's just the way it was. It's not necessarily that they were trying to be yes. um, malevolent or anything, but that's, yep. that's what you just did. You kept mm-hmm. that stuff up and level. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I th- and I think also from a historical context, you know, if we're thinking about family that has been through the, the big wars that have happened, that was also a coping strategy, right? Like to to disconnect from the body and to disconnect from emotions, and then that gets passed down the line as you know yeah. through other families. So, it yeah. it is a and also because if from a societal perspective, if that is not being held up as okay, we need to do some work on this now because yes, that got us through those times, but but this is really important. Which I think on a on a societal level that wasn't happening, then it just continues to be perpetuated, and then we get down yeah. the line until we reg- eventually get to someone who says this feels really awful and I'm so uncomfortable, and you know goes and sees a therapist or whatever, or just exists in a time where there is greater awareness around the emotional needs yeah. of humans in general. And of children, yeah. you know, that they start to do that work and they become, you know, the cycle breakers or however people want to, you know, think of themselves. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I love what you were saying there, which is people do not do it intentionally to hurt us. And I yeah. think that's such an important thing because also when we are going through this process of starting to recognize that we have been harmed by some of the interactions in our family, it is important to recognise that people do the best they can with what they have available. And similar to, you know, you and I were discussing before we started recording that um, for many of us today who are learning about respectful parenting or aware parenting or whatever, we're trying really hard to be those respectful type parents. But if we, but many of us are coming from a background where we don't have the imprinting in our nervous system to be able to be like that all of the time and with all of the big emotions of our children. And again, remembering then that we are doing the best we can with what we have, right? To try and really bring on as much self-compassion as we possibly can. And the more self-compassion we have for ourselves, the more regulated our nervous system is and the more we can actually then, you know, do more of the respectful parenting and all of the rest of it as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with you. And I think that's such an important point because Mm. I always imagine like in me having like a deep like well that's kind of empty and and I have to fill up my well Mm -hmm. with 
like swimming or Epsom salt baths and therapy and everything mm. so that I can actually give to my children because otherwise I have nothing to give to them in terms of otherwise I could just stand there and scream all day yes. and and shame them into being compliant because you know, mm. I sometimes think to myself, I can really understand why you really want compliant children. Mm. Who, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, I like, I sometimes think, oh my God, I wish I had those ones, but, yeah. but I don't. And I think that it's, it's you know, like in terms of the cycle breaking thing, I think that I think to myself, well, there's no addiction in our household. We're not, we're not, there's no alcoholism. I'm really tethered to their feelings. I'm not making them responsible for each other. I'm taking that responsibility. I'm repairing, but I can't, I'm not, I'm also not perfect. Mm. And my daughter said to me the other day, mommy, why are you so rude to us? Cause I just shouted and I was like, and it really called me out. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. You know, sometimes I feel very stressed and, and I've repaired and everything explained to mm. her, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just very messy. Mm. It is. It is. Kind of but that's also honest. being, that's being human, isn't it? You know, the messiness of, of being alive. And, you know, I think even just that ability to sort of to create the space for our children to call us out is such an important thing. I remember hearing, I think it was Jason Reynolds talking to Brene Brown about that, where he was talking about his mother, that she was, you know, quite boundaried and quite strict. But she also said, if you ever think that I'm doing the wrong thing, then you stand on your square there and you tell me like it is, right? And she's like, it doesn't mean that you won't receive, that there is no consequence for maybe some bad behaviour or whatever it is, but I will I'll listen and I'll, I'll take that on board and I will, you know, take responsibility where I need to. And I remember hearing that and thinking that is just, that's like, that's just the dream. Like, you know what I mean? Like I thought about that for myself you know, if I had had that in my childhood and I was like, oh my goodness, like that's huge. And it's a beautiful thing because it's like, you're still responsible for your behavior. And so there might be a consequence for that, but I'll st- I'll hear you out and we'll have that conversation. Right. And I love that because that's kind of what you're talking about there. It's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Sharon. And all the science backs us up on that about, mm. about how there's a book, what's it called? Oh, yeah, it's actually, I've got a chat called The Power of Discord. And he talks about it, there's two authors, but they talk about how we're all like, he uses some stuff from Stephen Hawking and talks about, and I'll probably get some of the story wrong as I tell you it, but he basically talks about how in relationships, we're all like atoms or particles bumping up against each other. And that bumping up against each other is actually how we get to know each other better and create more intimacy. And I don't mean sexual intimacy, I mean mm. getting to know each connection. other. Connection. And that's, all of the relationships are like that and having rupture and having fighting or whatever in relationships is not a, like a signifier of a bad mm. relationship. It's just that's how we kind of get to know each other better. And when you apply that to children, well, when I apply that to my children, mm. and I thought, yeah, we're all bumping up against each other and it's always my responsibility to repair, but I don't have to castigate myself. Yes. Like yeah. being this horrible witch or anything. I totally agree with that. And I think it's just that thing of like, you know, understanding that 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 is just being human, that messiness is part of being human. And so when we see it from that perspective, or in fact, one of the other things that I love is talking to people about like this beginner mindset. So, you know, I'm, I've got my oldest child is six years old. So I'm like six years old as a mum. that's a baby, right? Like, so thinking about it from that perspective, it's like, I'm allowed to make mistakes and even better if I make mistakes in front of my kids, because then I can say, Hey, look, I'm human too. And I make mistakes. So you don't need to beat yourself up when you make a mistake because I won't do that either. Right. So I feel like so much of what can make our experience richer in 
being mothers is actually understanding that we are actually so similar to one another in in the mistake making and and in the joys and all of the rest of it like we're all struggling in different ways and you know potentially sometimes punishing ourselves about that but really what we need to recognize is that this is being human it's humanness yeah. we make mistakes yeah. and we can forgive ourselves for that and and then just move on you know make the repair and then move on that's it right yeah. such a such an important thing Mm. Yeah, I love what you said about the making mistakes because so much of what I see, particularly when we've used perfectionism to keep ourselves safe, is that mistakes are like catastrophic and mm. even having problems like the problem of your boiler breaking down or you've mm. got a leak in your roof or your car tire blows or something, that that is kind of catastrophic and is often used as a way to show, look, I'm failing in some way because we've never had mistakes Modeled. I mean, I thought that I should just be able to sort all problems out. And it's such it's such a thing to learn. This is life. This is problems. There are problems. There will always be problems. There will always be change. And like spilling something is not. Mm. I like what you just said about making mistakes. I found it so valuable to model for my children. Oh, look, I made a boo boo. You know, that's mm-hmm. okay. That yes. we can be kind to ourselves around that because otherwise, you know, if something drops and you kind of like go. <gasps> And your whole nervous system gets, the kid picks up on that immediately. Whereas if they drop it and you're just like, like just straight and it's like, it's fine. We'll just look like, that's what happens when, yeah. I don't know, drop your plate on the floor, it shatters. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's making me think about how, how much that feeds into that inner dialogue as well, right? Like that, that voice within us that keeps us accountable as well, right? Like the voices of our parents you know, are what we kind of internalize. That's that that's yeah. that critic that is there. And so, yeah, I'm I'm just thinking about how do we speak to ourselves and how do we help to cultivate that voice of compassion for our children? It's yeah. absolutely not only how we speak to ourselves, but how we speak to them about these these mistakes. And you know, from my my kind of background, like spilling milk was a big thing. And it was totally something that you got in trouble for and you were shamed for. And it was like, you know, this big thing. And so when you have that background for people listening, also recognize that saying that we don't do those, that we don't shame our children or that we just say, oh, well, the plate broke. It's so much easier to say that than it is to embody that and do that in the moment because your nervous system in that moment is probably responding to it in the same way that it did in your childhood, which was potentially with fear because there there was threat there, right? Because you knew that your parents might respond poorly to that. Yeah. And I think listening to you say that, I respond like that. I'm so hypervigilant and I've got an exaggerated startle response. And that's something that I'm really working on, but that's something from my own background. And so if one of my, some of my my children have vomited or not, and so if it sounds like my daughter's going to vomit, I immediately do this. It sets me up. I'm like, I go into like a a fight response or something about what am I going to, how am I going to sort this out now? And I've watched my other twin watch me do that and try and make it better for me sometimes. And Mm. I find that devastating because I can see how she is trying to tend to me. But, Mm. you know, it's it's really a work in progress. We all are a work in progress. I can't, that's an involuntary thing that happens. And Mm. I'm working on climbing the system and Mm. reassuring myself it's okay. But, yeah, I think I really want to back up what your point about we can't shame ourselves for things that we are we're still learning about and we don't have mastery over it. Mm, That's right. Old, old, old response. Absolutely. And even, you know, even with that, I think that that thing where you notice maybe your child 
trying to make you okay, trying to make you feel okay about something. I think the thing with that is also, you know, kids, you know, your your girls are, are six. Kids are also learning about social responsibility. They do, they love you. You know, they worry, they do worry about you, right? Because they care about you. Yeah. If they see you in distress, yeah. especially for our children, because they think that we are always okay. So when they see that we're not okay, it's like so shocking to them. I remember having a day recently where I was just exhausted and the kids were really arguing a lot and I just I just lost it and I went to the bedroom and just cried like howling sobbing heavy kind of crying and my two kids were huddled around me and my son's face he was just like I didn't know you got this sad mum. <laughs> That's what he said. And he was just like trying to, he was just, I could tell he was, you know, worried about that. He was like how do I make this better? And I said to him yeah, I do get this sad sometimes, not all the time. And I said, and you don't need to make me feel better. It's okay for me to feel sad. I'm, a, you know, it's good for me to cry because yeah, I really it. need to cry every once in a while. I think also for us doing the work that we do go, oh no, like they're starting to worry about my emotions. And am I now making them responsible for my emotions? We can so get in deeply within that. But I think we can also look at it as, okay, I've noticed that. And I'm going to, I'm going to send that. I'm going to, I'm going to really bring home that message of like, yeah, I am sad. And that's okay for me to feel this way. And it's not your responsibility to make that better. You know, I will be okay. If you want to be here with me and just sit with me, you can, but you don't have to change anything. You don't have to do anything. Right. So it's, it's, it's like, there are always, I feel like there's always a, a way of viewing things or framing them so that it can be a teachable moment, right? It, it's a it's an opportunity to to bring home that lesson again. That is, people are allowed to feel sad, and you can be there with them, but you don't have to be responsible for making them feel happy, right? I remember being very aware, and at that time, I was like, part of the crying was also like I was mad, I was furious with my kids because they were just like fighting all the time and bopping each other on the head and screaming at each other. And I was just like, oh, my God, I just can't handle this for one more second. And it was just like the angry crying, you know, like it was it was that kind of thing. And at the same time, it was a, it was actually like a lovely moment of connection and of pulling me back to the real moment, right, rather than being caught up in my own head and about how hard this all is and all of the rest of it. And it was like that moment of like, Oh, okay. I see what's happening. My children are here. You know, what's their need? What's, what do I need to bring home to them? That kind of thing. It was a nice way to actually pull me out of my own, you know, catastrophizing <laughs> in that moment. Mm. Yeah. And also, for, for, what a lovely thing that he reflected to you because it's you modeling so much that sadness is okay. And what a mm. valuable lesson for both of them. Mm. Yeah. And that yeah. expressing that is like so valuable. Yeah. And one thing I want to just add, I guess, is that. Also, many of us, we don't know, like our children were in our bodies. Mm. So they have a lot of our, like our, our chemicals, you know. I mean, there's a lot of science behind this now about what happens in, in when they're in our tummies. But I have to be really gentle with myself because my children have my nervous system. They're very sensitive. They're, there's, I can't kind of reverse engineer them to be different to how they are. Just because I've got like a lot of new knowledge and I think we have to be so kind to ourselves about that because otherwise sometimes I just think oh, everything's just a disaster mm-hmm. like, <laughs> and and but then it's almost like I wish I could be a different person and so mm-hmm. like maybe having some acceptance around our own past like what's happened in our history and how we can't um each of us have had what's going to come to us it's come to us and yes. that's kind of we can't mm-hmm. kind of change that and so 
I'd really had to step away. I think at some point I was really trying to like ameliorate everything, you know? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can't. No, like, we can't. We can't. And also, you know, the thing with that is, you know, imprinting that we get, there is an amazing amount of neuroplasticity, right, in children in particular. So that can change. And and also yeah. because it's changing from such an early age for them as opposed to us, like it's so hard for us because we've had, you know, 30 years or more of being a particular way, right, and and really not having maybe insight or someone to guide us in a better way in res- in, in respect to knowing that we matter, knowing that we belong, knowing that we're worthy, all of that sort of stuff, right? But our children, even if they have come into this world with some imprinting that is that is coming from us with a, a nervous system that maybe isn't as flexible as we might like it to be, they have parents who, if they have insight, can start to put into place practices to change that. But also, it also just reminds me, you know, I remember a comment that you made when we were talking when we were not recording and you were talking about children being our greatest teachers. And I think also there's, you know, without getting too woo about this, although I do love a bit of woo, is is also that, you know, it's the it's the lesson. I think also that them having that imprinting provides some tension that we come up against as well, which which then allows us to see the things that we need to work on. And without that tension, you, do, do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's just yeah. coming back to that same thing about like it is not our children's responsibility to heal us or to be our teachers, but it is just it's just kind of like a byproduct of this interaction that happens, right? And we can yeah. either lean into that and say, oh, okay, my eyes are open and I'm going to get into that discomfort and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to allow that to change me or we can become you know, or we can follow the same course that has been set before, right? Like where we become coercive and we, you know, try to you know, shame our children into being compliant and all of the rest of it because it's uncomfortable to look in the mirror, right? So I think that there's something interesting going on there as well. Like, like let it be the let it be the guide, let it be the teacher, right? Those uncomfortable mm-hmm. feelings and that dis, you know, the discomfort that we have there, lean in and look closer and say, how can I work this to my advantage as well? Yeah, mm. yeah exactly. Yeah. I think that's some of the most beautiful work. Mm. And also, I think I was stuck in my own perfectionism when I was trying mm. to like fix everything. Do you know what I mean? And 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 actually living in perfection when perfectionism has kept you safe. I think as a real practice, I've, I've, I've found that, that I have to keep on reminding myself, okay, it's allowed to be like this. I'm allowed to be like this. This is what imperfection looks like. That means I don't get it all right. Because mm-hmm. otherwise I sometimes think I'm trying to secretly get it all right. Mm. But, you know, but I'm, but I'm not and I can't. And yeah. neither can my kids. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that's a good kind of lead into the next thing I'd love to ask you, which is, you know, we've talked obviously about the challenges there. What do you think has been the gift for you or your biggest area of growth? So my biggest area of growth has been working towards a more flexible nervous system, I would say. And the gift for me, I mean, I guess that's also a gift I think I would never have known the depth of my own pain without having children and the extent to which I was intended to. And so that's given me lots more material for really being very loving to myself. 
Mm. and kind of really trying to be present for myself and noticing some of my own pain because for example like I find car journeys very tricky with my children because it literally sends me into dorsal I feel like I'm flooded by requests from the second we leave mm-hmm. and asking like when we're driving out of the driveway how when are we going to get there and it's like 10 hours or something and I couldn't understand why I've done a lot of work on trying to understand what that was and what was happening for me. But what I realized was how it literally sent me to a place of shutdown. And I would never say that my home from home and my nervous system was dorsal. I would always think it was the sympathetic place of being much more active. But I realized how so much of my stuff was not tended to. And it's really highlighted that for me, how sometimes things are just way too much for me because I don't have that capacity and I have to build that in my system first to sort of, so now like with car journeys, I do various different things to help me have the capacity and to have compassion for myself so that I can actually withstand it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I think it's, yeah, I'm, I'm much, I, I need to be tended to much more than I ever thought I did need to be tended to. You know, it's mm. brought about a gentleness. That is just so divine that you have said that because I feel like that that is beautiful. Like what a lovely, amazing gift, you know, and I think and I think if you maybe if you hadn't had children, I mean there may have been other things that may have brought that up for you at some, you know, along the line, but but not having had children, the 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 harshness that could have existed there for you in so many spaces in your life, right? I feel the same. I have become so gentle as a person compared to who I used to be and and for myself and for others and recognising, oh, wow, like there's this little part of me that has so much yearning to be held and loved and cared for and nurtured. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so beautiful. I think it makes me want to cry, but... Thank you so right about that because I think that without children, I think I would have gone on to become more invulnerable mm. and try to portray like a sense of invincibility or something, push more, like done more shopping, done more overworking, done more like let me buy another pair of shoes or another handbag to sort of show how shiny I am. And now that's kind of all fallen away, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm also thinking about like as a therapist for me as well, it's been such a gift for me, you know, the humility, (laughs) like, you know, and it's just like the, you know, this concept of unconditional positive regard is like on a whole nother level now, right? Because it's like the depth of pain that people can be in, in this, in this phase of life. And of course, there's all the joy that comes with being a parent as well, but really understanding that now on another level and being like, yeah, I have love for everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think mm. it's so true. It's so beautiful because I think that we need like a love revolution in our world just generally for everything. And so starting with that with ourselves is we're so much more able to extend it to so many people, you mm. know, like, I don't know, in politics, so many people are acting out of their like own pain and, Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. That's I don't know if I'm going down that pathway. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's so true as well, because it's that same thing again about like you mentioned earlier about being in a well, if it isn't full, you don't have to give others. And I think that that applies in in lots of things. And that implies uh, applies rather to this concept of of compassion as well. If we if we don't have compassion for ourselves, it doesn't mean we can't have compassion for other people, but it's like it's a whole nother level when you have compassion for yourself 
and for the pain and the challenge that you experience, the amount of compassion that you have for others, it just grows, right? It just really overflows. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I just feel like I just want to sit in that and just feel like mm. it's a lovely gift, <laughs> beautiful reflection. And then I just want to ask you, you know, what what would you like to, and I feel like you've imparted so much here anyway, and thank you so much for your vulnerability, but what do you most want to impart on mothers who are listening today? A sense of that they will have a kind relationship with themselves, that they will kind of say to themselves, bless me, like not in a God way or anything, but just like bless my little heart and my soul. I'm doing the best I can mm. because I think that when we have that inner kindness and self-compassion to really hold ourselves gently, it's it's so much we've got so much more to give to those around us and not that it's because we need to give to those around us, but, but we need that kindness for ourselves. You know, Mm -hmm. the job of reparenting ourselves and endlessly turning to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's so important because so many of us have been taught to turn away from ourselves when we most need it Mm -hmm. and to just kind of shift back and to just go like, I might've done something like shot at my children or whatever I've done, but like just to develop that in kinder internal voice, I think. Mm, yeah, I think that's I like that. what I would just wish for mm, people. I love that. I also I want to add there as well because I think I have been, I've had this belief. Well, yeah, I've I've sort of thought this way as well. Like much earlier on in my in my kind of career as a psychologist, but also what I noticed from women who come in to see me, and many of them are. are involved in reparenting work or end up involved in reparenting work of their own once they do see me is just that this idea of reparenting is a is kind of like a lifelong journey as well and I really want people to understand that because I feel that people may hear about reparenting and have the idea that it's this set of of resources or skills that you apply a couple of times and now you know, you should be kinder. And and I think well, that good. Many, yeah, yeah. And I think that many people feel disillusioned then by the by the idea of reparenting because it is actually so hard. And because it's not only it's not a couple of sessions and you're done. Like it's like a lifelong practice of returning to yourself and of providing yourself with nurturance and and positive regard and love. Yeah. Right. And and it is an ongoing thing. And within that process, there is space for many attempts that don't work out, right? Like where we're like, we're caught, we're in this, you know, we're seeing a therapist or we're really consciously trying to reparent and be gentle with ourselves. And yet we can still find ourselves being harsh and yeah. putting ourselves down. And it's okay if that happens. Like it's it's part of the yeah. process. It's the unlearning, right? You've had, um, you know, by this stage, a lifetime of something very different, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and so really I being always, gentle with ourselves around the expectations around what reparenting looks like and how long it's going to take. Like this is you're in for the long haul. Yeah, you're in it forever. And I always think, I always say to my clients, because lots of, I mean, I'm include myself in this. I want things to be like quick, you know. Mm. And I say to clients, so I'm 46 now, and I say to myself, well, when we're 92 you know, well, hopefully we'll have already got this. And I say to my clients, like, they're 35 or something, and I'm like, let's talk again when you're 70, when you've actually had enough time to practice it. Do you know what I mean? Because it's so, like, we are with ourselves all the time, and often we're our own worst enemy, and we have to try and cultivate 
being our own best friend, but it takes so much practice. It does. Yeah. So yeah. much practice. And also I think that because of this stage of life, when you are a mother and maybe in particular with young children, just because you are, there is so much need, like you're so in demand when they're young before they're in full-time school or before they're more self-sufficient in many ways, there also isn't, there isn't a lot of time to do that work as well. So you're just trying to like slot it in or you're very distracted because there are so many needs and stuff. And that's just part of this phase of life as well. And so I think many people recognize the need to reparent early on in their parenting journey, but it can feel harder at this point in time as well, because there is so much going on and there is so much need. There are so many tangibles as well as trying to hold space and parent and actually parent your own children. So just for anyone listening who is on that journey, just know that it is hard. And it, 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 I imagine that it will become more easy even for myself as my children mature in some ways, right? Because there'll be new things, right? New triggers, new layers, all of that sort of stuff. But I mean, I will have more opportunity for reflection, you know, and for and for moments to to really be able to integrate that work and the new things that I'm learning, which is hard to do when you have young children, especially multiple young children, because there's a lot going on in that time. Yeah. It's so hard to do. And I think that I really had to be, I mean, for me, I didn't really have much time to do that in the early years. And I already comforted myself with chocolate and with tea. Mm. So other things filled that gap of that's distraction and pushing down, but mm. it's, it, I, I, there was, I didn't have the capacity or the yes. latitude or the space to actually do, do some of that mm-hmm. because you're just trying to survive. Yes. And in those days of survival, you know, sometimes it was just from cup of tea to cup of tea or like another chocolate bar. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I need to look at the issues around sugar personally, but yeah. <laughs> It's such a good point that you raise that though into, you know, in that whole thing of like how much capacity do we have at different phases in life? So there may be phases where, you know, you do this inner work really intensely and then other times where there just isn't space for it. And, you know, maybe you are more of in a, you feel more like you're in a survival space and it's okay for that to be happening. And it's also okay to not always be working on yourself to actually just be okay in the messiness of who you are in that particular point in time and to still find the joy within that. Because if we're always trying to work on ourselves as well, like that's just exhausting, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, Kath, it has just been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And far out, we've just gotten so deep and I just love it. <laughs> I just love it. It's really Thank joyful. You. I, tears are just behind my eyes because it feels so warm. I so can really see that. Deep. I can yeah. see that. Thank you. And I just... I love to finish off these episodes with kind of what I call the rapid fire questions, which is really just surface level stuff to give us an idea of what you do day to day. So I'd love to know what are you listening to in this moment in your life? So music wise, I feel like us professionals in this space are always doing podcasts, but I'd love to even know what sort of music you're into. But yeah, music or podcasts, what are you listening to at the moment? So I'm listening, I'm also recording a podcast, so I listen to my own podcast because mm-hmm. I have to force myself sometimes to listen back. The last, I listened to Brene Brown's Welcome Back episode last week and I loved that. I haven't I heard it yet. Me. I just, oh, love her, so I can't wait. After Yeah, so out. that was really lovely. Mm. And music, um, I love classical music actually. I love things to kind of help soothe me and calm me. I also like dance music, so I find dance music very very uplifting. I actually have a lot of CDs still, so I play a lot of classical mm. music. 
years. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. I do love the old classical stuff. I've definitely gotten more into that with kids because I find it really regulating <laughs> when everything feels intense for myself and for them. So, yeah. And tell me, what was the last TV show that you binged or what are you into? I have watched Married at First Sight Australia, to be honest. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's a good old Which have a like- laugh. Yeah. <laughs> But like, shows like that, I can't turn off the psychologist in me. Oh, me too. I'm like constantly <laughs> analysing them totally. And my husband is just like, can you just like leave it? Yeah. I'm like trying to go into the background, what's going on anyway. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but I love the landscape in, in mm. Night of First Night Australia. Mm. But what have I watched? Oh, I love Grey's Anatomy. So mm. every year when they bring out a new series, I binge watch that. Yeah. But otherwise I don't watch that much TV, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I could just go down a big rabbit hole, but then I struggle with getting myself to bed. And some of the things that I used to love watching, I can't watch anymore. Yes, totally. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm totally the same. It's just too much. So I totally very, very relate to that. And what do you feel has been your most influential book that you've read? Well, that's that's an amazing question. I'm looking at hundreds of books next to me. You think about this. Maybe Return to Love? Mm by Marion Williamson. Basically, the highlight of the book is talking about how we either choose love or fear. Mm. And I always return to that. It really helps me in my parenting when I'm spinning out of control, thinking like, what's wrong with my kids? Or like, how do I help them? Or like, have I screwed this up massively or something? To just return to a place of love. And mm. and it's a very, there's a lot of humility in the book. I found that quite grounding as a guide for everything, basically. Other books, of course, I don't know. I love Brene Brown's books. I think The Gifts of Imperfection I also oh, really loved. Man, that is, I read that almost every year and I think because I listen to that as an audiobook now and almost every time I just cry for the whole thing. <laughs> like every time it just absolutely gets me. It's the most powerful, powerful book I have. Yeah, I yeah. find that re- really, really very moving. Mm. And it just yeah, feels like a beautiful just warm hug and so much permission so much yeah. permission is given in those words. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't listened to that book, it is absolute. That would be my top book over and over and over again. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much, Kath, for sharing all of this with me. You have really just been so vulnerable and it is a beautiful thing. You know, again, this thing around shame that Brene talks about, the more we share our stories the less shame that there is and the more light that there is, you know, when we hold them up. And so thank you so much for doing that and for sharing with everyone listening so that they can feel less alone in their own journeys as well. It is just such a lovely gift to be able to provide. So thank you so much. Kath, where can people find you if they want to, you know, have a chat or or find out more about what you do? So I'm on Instagram and my handle is psychotherapymum, psychotherapy underscore mum, and my website. I've got two websites. My one is my therapy one more. It's psychotherapymum.com. Mm-hmm. And I've got a podcast called Grow Yourself Up. So they yep. can listen to that. It's beautiful. You should definitely check it out. Thank you so much. I will put all of those links in the show notes as well for anyone listening. Thank you so much, Kath. Hope to chat again soon. Thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me, Mama. If you enjoyed this episode, I would just love for you to leave me a review and follow or subscribe to be notified when the next episode drops. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me over at Instagram where my handle is at lifeafterbirthpsychology and you can find out more about how I can support you on your mothering journey at my website, www.lifeafterbirth.com.au. 
See you back here soon for our next chat.